This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Charcoal is a subscription service for photo books dedicated to selecting and delivering the most essential books in contemporary photography. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and a collectible print. August Book of the Month is Omaha Sketchbook by Gregory Halpern, and it comes with a curator's note card and print by Raymond Meeks. Charcoal Book Club is really the best way to build your photo book collection. Join today at charcoalbookclub.com. This episode is also brought to you by Lightwork, a nonprofit that's been supporting artists working in photography since 1973. Lightwork hosts a world-renowned residency program and exhibitions, offers a community lab facility that's open to the public, and publishes Contact Sheet, one of the longest-running photography journals in the world. As a very special deal for listeners, take 10% off Contact Sheet subscriptions, sign books and prints from the Lightwork shop when you use the code MAGICHOUR at checkout. Support a great cause and begin a renew your subscription today at lightwork.org slash shop. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. In 2010, with a feeling that the traditional publishing industry was not going to last, Bruno Seychelles founded Self-Publish Be Happy, an initiative to support and promote the work of emerging photographers. Originally, it functioned as a platform for artists making DIY books and zines, but eventually would become something more expansive. They got involved in educational activities, the curation of exhibitions and events, and with their own publishing initiatives. Through its imprint, SPBH Editions, Seychelles has published books by Carmen Winnant, Lorenzo Vitturi, Nicholas Mjolnir, and Christina de Medel, just to name a few. When we got together at SPBH's studio in London, Seychelles told me how he got into photography in a serendipitous way. After graduating university in London with a degree in sociology, he wasn't sure what to do. At an odd job after school, someone mentioned that Fabrica was looking for people and to get in touch. But when he did, his background in sociology didn't seem well suited. A receptionist transferred him to Colors magazine, then edited by Adam Broomberg and Oliver Chanarin, and he ended up getting an internship there. Eventually, he started working as a journalist. I will pitch a story, and there were thematic issues. So, you know, there are different um, themes um, from violence to volunteering to... And then I will pitch a story, and then um, we'll take the story to the editors, and then um, if they assigned the stories, then they will pair me with a photographer, hmm. and then we will go on an assignment. And then I got... Interested. In fact, the last issue I did, I co-edited, and it was with uh, Stefan Ruiz, and I did one about photo studios. So the idea was to kind of look at different social themes in uh, through photo studios photographs. Sometimes the photo studio itself, sometimes there will be the images of it. And then I think I started thinking about photography as a thing and hmm. not just as a tool. And in fact, that is the reason when then why I left colors because I went to live in Indiana for a couple of months in this small town called La Porte because mm. one of the people that was working for Colors Magazine came across these proofs from a photo studio that was operating in the 60s and beginning of the 70s in a small town uh, which effectively photograph the entire town you know in specific moment of their life so you know birth first communion wedding death and i went there and i worked on a book and then i sort of kind of fell out with a person that i was working with so in fact i've never been acknowledged for the work for that book which is mm. 
fine. Um, but that, I think, is the first time I really kind of start thinking about photography as a subject and not just as a kind of complementary tool in telling a story. So where did that lead you? What do you... What do you... So from there, I then um, I worked as a correspondent for some uh, newspapers in Italy, in London, um, but didn't really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I'm a reluctant writer, so to me it's a bit of a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of having to turn around all this material all the time really didn't appeal to me. So then I started looking for um, another job. I started sending my CV around, including to Magnum Photos, the agency. Um, and somebody at Magnum Desk saw my CV and she called me. And she said, oh, I saw your CV. You've been doing really interesting stuff. We're not looking for anybody here. But um, I just left a job um, at this small publishing house called Chris Boot Limited. Mm. And she put me in touch with Chris Boot, that at that time just started his publishing house after he worked for Fidon. And I got the job. Mm. Um, and and really, that was the first time that I really thought about photo books. Mm. What was he publishing at the time? I, I feel like I didn't even know that he had his own publishing house. I joined because of a book he was doing uh, about the history of documentary photography magazine called Things As They Are, mm-hmm. uh, which was co-published by Aperture. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we did quite a few books by Martin Parr. Uh, he did quite a few Magnum photographer, um, Larry Towell. And then we did also emerging British photographers. So Simon Roberts was one of the books. That, uh, James Mollison, Ape book, was one of the mm-hmm. books I did. that uh, was titled James and Other Apes. Um, yeah, uh, quite a few publications. So I was there for three years. And actually, Chris is the one that taught me about really photography and photo books. So all my kind of learning has been, um, in, you know, during that time. Hmm. What specifically comes to mind in terms of what you learned from him? One, the craft, mm-hmm. you know, the making of things. So, you know, how do you make a book? Physically, uh, how do you... Yeah, like, physically. The logistics. The maybe. logistics, what it means to fundraise for it, what it means actually to edit it, work with a designer, what's the language... You know, how do you get a quote? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how do you distribute it? Um, and because it was just me and him, so it was very, you know, I was kind of part of any kind of conversation. And um, I'm a very good listener. So, you know, most of the time it wasn't even that he was teaching, but I did listen on anything he will say. And then I learned about photography. I mean, I didn't know much about photography. I remember he did a, uh, in the interview that he did, he asked me, what photographer do you like? And I think I said Nan Goldin. Mm-hmm. Not because I actually love Nan Goldin, but, um, you know, it was a very sophisticated taste. So I remember that in the lunch breaks, I will go through his bookshelf and look through stuff just to kind of learn. Why wouldn't he have considered Nan Golden to be sophisticated? No, no. If I look back, I wouldn't consider it sophisticated. Ah. It's basically saying the kind of greatest hits. Yeah. You know, it's like my mom probably can say Nan Golden. So you don't need to have a sophisticated taste to, yeah. to kind of appreciate Nan Golden. I'm, so I think it was definitely not for my taste in photography they hire me right. and it's funny because in a way i think um in a way you also then rebel against that taste for example mm-hmm. you know we'll have really quite harsh conversation about what i thought was good um you and chris said. would me and chris yes yeah. 
So and and it's interesting because it's the same relationship that you have with your parents, with some of your teachers. You know, the most effective one. In a way, you can you build it um, both in admiring and acquiring the taste, and sometimes just rejecting it and kind of build your own understanding um, as a contraposition to somebody else's understanding mm. of a subject matter. Or, um, so, and uh, and it's it's funny because some of the books that I did um, as a publisher they really went against some of those things I learned then. And it's not specific to Chris's taste; it's Chris is to do with the trade, the kind of traditional trade. You mm-hmm. know, um, certain kind of covers are um, believed to be more effective for the market, or the book is kind of created. Like for example, I n- I didn't have any text in some of the early books at all so there's no explanations about what the book is about there's no introductions there's not there's no context um and some of it i think it was a bit of a kind of rebelling against um some expectations of how a book should function mm-hmm. i'm curious about how else your tastes were developing in terms of what you were interested in in photography at the time like what kind of work was exciting you i mean it's an interesting uh, question clearly the work um, with Chris was part of it, but there was other things going on. Um, you know, if I think, for example, Wolfgang Tillman work, you know, f- for, from the kind of early Tashin book uh, to then at that time um, the work they was doing for Bart magazine, uh, for example, or just the kind of the aesthetic of the kind of um, documentary photography, um, um, the kind of underground at that time. Um, but also I remember uh, a show uh, called Cruel and Tender at Tate Modern it was early notice I assume um, which was this idea of the kind of the tenderness and the, and, and the cru- uh, cruelty of photography and there was Martin Parr there was Eggestone and there was this kind of the show that kind of conceptually was talking about these tensions um, in the work of some more contemporary photographers. And I re- remember being so kind of thrilled about the uh, possibility to um, think about a feeling, uh, the photography, you know, what is cruel, what is tender, mm-hmm. and why do we care about this too? And why do we care this kind of tension? Um, and I thought that that show really kind of described a lot of things uh, that I would recognize in, in society <laughs> at large. Hmm. which to me I think is still the kind of core of what I'm interested effectively I'm still a sociologist I haven't really moved too you know far away from it I'm always kind of interested in things that can tell a story about mostly ourself and funny enough I think a story about mostly myself (laughs) Uh you mean through the work that you publish you have to relate to it in a certain way or it's it ends up being somewhat I don't know if autobiographical is the right word but I think you need to do a job that I can't do myself or I think it's necessary to do. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I find that work needs to do that job for me. It needs to have qualities that respond to things that you want to engage with. Yeah. I mean, I I think i always looking for somebody that can communicate a certain kind of ideas. I mean, sometimes it's not even an, an idea. It's more about posing those questions in an effective way that 
myself cannot do really efficiently. Um, So I find that the work that I'm interested to publish, which sometimes is not the work that I, for example, enjoy, but often they overlap, they have that kind of quality. They pose those questions or they um, prompt uh, in a way that I think um, it's uh, in line with a set of beliefs or... Um, How do you know when you see like a SPBH book and like what qualities does a book of yours have? It's difficult to answer. Mm. Um, not because I'm so instinctive about things, mm-hmm. but I think there is an element of instinct. Mm-hmm. Um and I always feel I have to have a sense, and of course not always is successful, that that book is going to resonate, but also take people somewhere new and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, is that way, is the tonal quality of the way in which it does that of importance? Like if it's done in a very kind of playful way or with, you know, with, with a sense of humor well, often I try to make books that are charming mm-hmm. in the terms of not like kind of, but that they will charm you into liking them. So they have a kind of um, beauty of, you know, physical beauty being the covers, the way that it's printed. Um, so you need to be alert. So often I think the books need to have that kind of quality. Um, so. And I think the most successful book have a, that I made have that kind of quality. They have this kind of, they sort of kind of trap you. Um, and I also, I also find myself that, I also think that I get bored really easily. So I'm also looking for stuff that will not get me bored. Mm-hmm. And because of course the book is not this thing that just happens. You know, I have to live with it for a very long time. From the time that you start thinking about it, discussing it, find the money for it, printing it, and then... So if you think about it, it's like a couple of years of my life for each book. That's, mm-hmm. you know, more or less you sort of kind of have to live with. And I sort of kind of learned that they need to be books that I want to live with them. Both either... Well, ideally both with the person that makes the book, the author, as well as the subject matter. So it's that combination, it's the author and the subject matter that you need to kind of figure out from the get-go whether you want to yes. dive in or not. It's a bit like, you know, it's not one night stand. Mm-hmm. It's a bit a sort of kind of short relationship. Right. I mean, for one night stand, you can just kind of dip in and out. With something as a relationship, do you really want to go into a relationship with someone that um, you can bear the day after? <laughs> right. <laughs> or you will regret yeah. in a couple of months. So. And of course, not always that's the case. Mm -hmm. But then the actual book itself must have a certain kind of genesis. I'm curious about that process of making a book from deciding on, let's say, an author and their subject matter who you want to work with. If it's a very big kind of discovery process. Well, often there are books that don't exist before the conversation starts. Mm -hmm. So rarely happens that it's a book that has been already thought Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know it comes to me in a form of a dummy, or you know, or even a kind of fully formed body of work. 
often that isn't the case. So in a way, I choose the person first, and often that comes from long conversations. So I will start a conversation, and that conversation is like, you know, if I think about Carmen Wynn and, you know, recent books, you know, I met Carmen, I was always fascinated about her work, I knew her husband, uh, so, you know, I, I met her before, and then we had a kind of chat about maybe working together, and then she started working with this project, uh, MoMA, and from there we start kind of building it. And the same thing with Nicolas Mjolnir, same thing with Jean-Vincent Simonet. Patrick Waterhouse is slightly different, but more or less they all come. And it's not that I commissioned the book, but in a way I'm sort of part of the process from the very beginning, possibly because I find that part very interesting. Because, you know, with the dummy, you're basically just left with possibly the production of it and then distribution and marketing, which is absolutely boring. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's fun for somebody else, but definitely not for me. Yeah. You know, you just mentioned some artists who you've recently been working with, but um, how did you start self-published Be Happy in the first place? So I worked for Chris, and then after three years, I felt that the experience there was um, was uh, finished. It was basically my end of my 20s. So it was that kind of moment of kind of crisis where you're like, <laughs> what am I doing next? <laughs> so I literally didn't quite know what to do. I just ended a relationship. So I was looking really for generally something new. So I uh, decided to go to New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stafford Ruiz kindly offered me uh, his place for a few, I think the few early months. Um, and I ended up being there for two years. And it was a really exciting time. Um, was trying to figure out what to do. I was working on different projects, a kind of new set of friends. And while I was there, I started um, this project with uh, Antonio De Luca, this art director, who then worked on a lot of books for SPBH Edition. And in fact, SPBH Edition, which is the publishing side of So Publish Be Happy, was basically started with him. We met in New York through friends, and he was also kind of figuring out what to do next. For a brief period of time, we worked on a dummy of this erotic porn magazine, which never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this kind of time of kind of thinking outside of the box and thinking about new possibilities. But the other thing that happened while I was there, I started working on a book project and an exhibition for the Brooklyn Museum uh, that was called Dissident Desires, which actually never happened. Uh, that was about contemporary queer photography. Hmm. And Effectively, that project put me in touch with a lot of uh, artists that were making publications. So, because a lot of the artists were kind of gravitating around print and matter, um, not they were kind of related directly, but it was that kind of community, the sort of kind of queer um, underground um, zine publications. So, when uh, then I decided to come back to London because I was offered a job, uh, teaching job at university. Um, when I came back, I sort of kind of start thinking about all those people, those publications which I've seen in New York, and um, which were really exciting um, and were very different from the kind of traditional trade 
which I was working with Chris. Um, you know, Chris was distributed by Timson Hudson. It came from Fidon. And that kind of part of the industry were kind of fading, really, um, because of a transformation of the market and distribution. And I was just excited about this kind of traditional artist books, which I really didn't know much about it before. And so I decided to organize an event at the Photographer's Gallery. Um, and I did a call for submissions for um, photographers to send in their own publications, so self-published books. And the response were incredible. I mean, Andy went from Alex Soth to absolutely unknown people then, for mm -hmm. example, Lucas Playlux and one of his, I think it was before even he do his MFA. So it was a kind of the very first publication he did. And so I did this weekend event. And while I was doing the weekend event, I just realized that there was a bigger community that was interested, not only specific on the um, publication, but also of the kind of photography that those publications were uh, showing. So the call for submission is still open mm -hmm. these days. And in fact, their package is still here. Mm -hmm. And we have around 3,000 books stored behind there. Um, and um, then the published BIP became this sort of kind of strange thing in which I could do all sorts of things that... Um, yeah, so, so, so that call for submissions for that, that project at the Brooklyn Museum, that essentially evolved into self-published Be Happy. Well, I, or the, they're not related. The Brooklyn Museum effectively was a specific research. Right. But that kind of research, and just, I think, living in New York, gave me the opportunity to um, come across all this publication that was self-published mm -hmm. at that time. So, so you're receiving all these books, and then it starts to become a distribution channel? No, we never... So I think, in a way, maybe that was the really fortunate part of this. I never wanted to become a bookseller mm -hmm. i never wanted to become a distributor uh, effectively i always treated this as a curatorial job i would look at the material and choose the one that i felt was fitting for the collection mm -hmm. and put it online and the online was a really important part especially then because most of people hadn't seen a lot of this material mm -hmm. um, if well enough 10 years ago the internet was quite different than it is today um, and so people looked at all this material and it went from students who were interested in making their own publication to collector that was serious about purchasing or libraries or bookshops. Um, and I think then we started doing workshops um, to facilitate and help us, a publisher to make their own books. Um, we do all sorts of things. Then we had a TV channel and God knows what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was there a financial side to it early on? Like, was it, uh, you know, you're, you're in your late 20s, you're figuring out what to do. Did you see this at all as something that you could do for a living or make money with? Sadly not. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the kind of, um, a lot of, I feel, this kind of project, they never quite figure out their finance. I wonder if you could just speak about how you felt about that at the time, about just doing this thing that you wanted to do and, and not necessarily being so economically viable. And It's the excitement to walk into a place in the morning yeah. with also so possibility rolling in front of you. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, it literally I will show up with a group of volunteers that were excited, young, and um, we will start thinking about starting a YouTube channel mm-hmm. and we just did it. Right. So I think there is there is something so exciting and literally full and so fulfilling in the um, possibility of something to do what you want right um that i think outset the um difficulties of never making it into something that is financially viable um and also i don't come from money so it's not that you know i don't have a um somebody that pay for my rent so at the same time i always have to make it work um mm-hmm. so the teaching the workshops um they always have to make, you know, they always have to pay for my rent. Yeah. So teaching has always been part of what I do. Um, then the workshop were for quite a long time a kind of way to uh, subsidize or publish Be Happy. Um, and when I, we started doing books ourselves, um, the first book, we, the, set, the first set of books we did were subscriptions. So people will have to buy a year subscription for three books in advance without knowing what books they will buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically bankrolled the, the printing of the first set of books. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this now because we're turning 10 and it's time to sort of kind of figure out if this should continue, in what form. Because, of course, element of this are... Um, still exist for example the publishing side the educational side is much diminished um, and um, I had a lot of interesting conversation with people that have lived up other cultural phenomenons um, where you know being a kind of um, artist run um, gallery space or being other kind of organizations they often have a beginning of an end mm-hmm. because I think there are time in your life in which you are happy and willing to just make it work regardless. And there are times in which you not anymore. Sometimes those times are prompted by, you know, the needs of, of, of kind of have a financial stability. You know, you have kids, you know, whatever they might be. And I have come to uh, not only accept, but appreciate that things are beginning of an end. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Bruno Seychelles that we recorded at a studio in London. To find out more about the show, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm curious about how the workshops work. Um, uh, Julia, who runs his bookshop in Milan, she called me up out of nowhere and she said, oh, I run workshop, but would you like to do one? And I was like, hmm, workshop? I don't know how to do a workshop. Which bookshop? Mi, Mi, camera. Mi camera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So Julia basically came up with the idea. You know, she said, oh, I know you should do it. I was like, okay, well, I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was basically two days and um, a photographer will come with a set of pictures and uh, we will work through it until the second day in which I have to present a layout. And um, they are interesting because you basically force people to be quick and make things mm-hmm. versus, you know, pondering uh, forever on a sequence and so I did tons I mean I, I must have done in my life I would think at least 50 of them um, 50 workshops yeah it was one photographer at a time or you no, had no, a group no, 15 of photog- photographers 15 photographers over two days yeah mm-hmm. and um, you know I kind of engineer this thing where people will help each other with a layout uh, at the beginning, we used Blurb just to be able to use a software that was easy to access, um, do a layout. And it will, it's not a workshop in which you make the book. Effectively, a lot of time is actually a workshop that make you reconsider even if the pictures are good. Mm-hmm. Because actually, when you start working out what it means to take pictures into a layout, you kind of learn that maybe those pictures don't work or maybe you need to do more work. And then Aperture invited me to do a book which is basically based on the workshops. So the kind of the way that I taught uh, in the workshop, which has been a very interesting book because it got really terrible review on Amazon. I mean, it's a mix, half and half, but you know, it's a, it's a sort of kind of mainstream book. Mm-hmm. They did 10,000 copies of it. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people that bought it they were like what the fuck is this <laughs> because effectively it doesn't teach you how to make a book it's, it's more like a kind of intellectual provocation i mean there's a lot of things that you can learn from it uh, but you know the chapters about design it basically says hire designer <laughs> so it, it, you know if somebody wanted to get this book and, and you know an amateur photographer and they photographed black and white of a bridge uh, they took over a course of a year I don't think it's the book for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was interesting because at the beginning I was very, very mortified um, because it is quite idiosyncratic. I think it, if somebody's tuning with, you know, contemporary photographic practices and the history of artist books, it will find it interesting, I hope. Um, but then there's like the 99% of the rest of the people, amateur photographers, that did find it like a bad joke right um so um and and often uh, the kind of my educational enterprises are more a kind of prompt um than actually i'm here to kind of teach you how to make something right I don't, that, I don't it, know how to make something <laughs> yeah literally i don't know you figured it out as you're doing it well, no, but I meant is that I'm not a designer. Mm. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not particularly skilled in practical, you know. Uh, so I, I, I actually, if you put me in a room and say, okay, make something, I'm like, oh, I don't know actually hmm. um, uh, how to do it. So where do you see your role coming in, in the making of things? I'm a very, very tough critic. Mm-hmm. So um, often I have an idea, so I kind of respond to work with ideas, and then I prompt with kind of notes, <laughs> mm-hmm. saying this doesn't work, this doesn't. And um, I think I'm also lucky because I'm very interested, for example, in graphic design, um, as well as photography, um, and contemporary art and fashion. So I have a kind of broad, like personally interest. Um, so I often have a kind of 
um, set of tools that I can use in responding uh, to work. Um, but I think some people might find that helpful, other people might not. Um, depend on what you want from an educator, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, I, for example, I find it quite hard to work with undergraduate students often. Because actually, to be an educator and actually cater for uh, people that might never become a photographer, um, you have to have a kind of different set of tools for them, uh, which is often not nothing to do with a more interesting photography. You know, you, you're there to facilitate somebody to grow. Mm-hmm. And that might mean that I'm never going to be an interesting artist. Mm-hmm. What do you actually teach? So I teach in actually three different places. So I teach at uh, ECAL, which is in Lausanne, mm-hmm. and I teach in the MA Photography. And then I do a module that is around publishing, but also I work in uh, uh, for the kind of graduate program. Um, in Lausanne? In Lausanne, yeah. So you travel to teach? Yeah, I go every two weeks. And then I work in the MFA in Ithaca, New York, mm-hmm. where I usually go just in the summer. Image Text Ithaca? Image Text Ithaca, yes. Yeah. Um, and then I teach also here at the University of the Art in Camberwell, which is a fine art course, and they have photography. And I usually do work with a third year students for their final show. That's quite a bit. It, I mean, it's all quite small in, you know, it's, so I don't, I don't have a kind of position in which every week I have to go somewhere and teach. Um, but I do think that, uh, and maybe that has to do with my experience with Fabrica, um, where it, basically the idea was that you put a bunch of interesting young people in a place and you create a context in which they can create um, and that contest is done through um, workshops, it's done through socializing, it's done through studios and facilities um, of kind. And then you just let them create. And I feel that often my interest has always been to kind of recreate that environment mm-hmm. uh, for artists. Um, and I often joke about it, but I think also my experience as a Boy, Boy Scout for you know, decades was also the same you know you sort of kind of set up an environment for people to learn and grow um, mm-hmm. and effectively if i think of the best part of a published be happy to me is like you know one can say you know can admire the books that are published or but to me the best part is always been to create an environment in which people can create so it being through a website that would encourage you being a kind of young Polish photographer to do queer photographs or being at the Tate where I used to do programming during off print in which there is this kind of wacky space in which people can experiment um, is always this kind of creating this opportunity for people to do things. Uh, and I think if I think about really my work, that is actually where I'm the most proud Hmm. And sometimes, you know, the result might be a good book or might be an interesting programming or might be a student that actually produce good work. Sometimes not. (laughs) (laughs) What do you look for in the work that you respond to most? It really varies. I mean, I learned that I'm a bundle of contradictions. Mm -hmm. You know, know, if I think about stuff that I said in the past, I'm like, ooh, that was... (laughs) 
perhaps <laughs> not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one has to accept uh, you know, not only you make mistakes, but you also change. Mm-hmm. Your taste change, the world change. Um, so I think it really kind of respond to a specific moment in time. You know, if I think about what I'm thinking now, um, you can line up my recent work. So I did this event at CEO Berlin called Photo Book Reset that was about rethinking about basically photography in the context of a social changing landscape, both in terms of race, uh, representation, technology. And, you know, that event came out of me trying to figure out myself where the hell I am and what the hell we're doing. So, And then if I think about the books that I'm publishing, then working on, you know, the designer was here until today. So we have a book about whiteness in photography. Whiteness. As in race. Yeah. Um, I have one that's Nicholas writing um, that, you know, in kind of many different ways, rethink about the, uh, the, the reason um, or the what is photography today? Nicholas Mulner. Nicholas Mulner, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, and then I do. Uh, I'm doing a book with a Carl by a former student, um, and uh, in this um, uh, book, she re- she'd been thinking about her personal history um, as a, um, a mixed race, um, going back to where her dad is from. Uh, and uh, in the Dominican Republic and engaging with this kind of playboy or beach rats, I don't know what you call mm-hmm. it, this kind of beautiful man on the beach uh, and that had uh, been one of them at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and through the relationship with them, maybe working out something about who she is and the world. So, and I, you, you know, if you put all of these things together, I think you have a bit of a map of where I'm at. Which is definitely yeah. different from five years ago. That sounds interesting. I mean, I can't wait to see all of those publications. The results. Yeah, they sound yeah. great. <laughs> is the not knowing and kind of discovering, seeing those things come to fruition, another really exciting part of the job or the work? Yes. I mean, it, it, it's always... Um, it's funny. I don't find as excited to see the object mm-hmm. at the end because I feel that by then the kind of journey has already been completed you've worked on it so much you you worked on it it sort of kind of already had a sense and you know it's nice to see the stain but it's sort of kind of anticlimactic in a sense Mm -hmm. um i did i did i do find it that it's sometimes interesting to see the response that people have to um books or ideas and um with some of this i actually i learned that you're never quite sure once you put a book out into the world you might get an award or a good reviews but yeah and it's not even about the review is even about the way that people emotionally respond to it mm-hmm. um you know i i've been lucky enough to have seen books that really resonated to people in a way that to me is sort of kind of inexplicable you know if i think about dosto anatomy by lorenzo vittori if i think about you know, uh, my birth by Carmen Wienand, um, but even, even you know, in most tides and Nyla by Nicholas Muner, in in different ways, um, or my Arochard's book, they really kind of resonated. Um, uh, and you know, I, I I always tell these tales of of messages that I got on Instagram, mm-hmm. or 
you know, a girl kind of starting sobbing in front of me at the book fair, looking through, for example, Carmen's book. Mm-hmm. And did I know that the, the work was powerful? Yes. Um, did I have a sense when I saw the installation at MoMA that had an impact? Yes. Did I know that it will have such an impact in the kind of broader kind of conversation? Absolutely not. And I assume that Carmen didn't as well. Um, and I think it is to do with, you know, the quality of the work, but also it often is about time. You know, sometimes the message kind of gets to the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I, if I, um, sorry, I'm sort of going to go back to a question that you asked earlier um, about what's the quality of the books that I think um, they have to have. I think, I still feel maybe it's a bit pathetic this but you know as a kind of queer boy in my room as a teenager there were some kind of publication that talked to me that somebody was sending me a message from far away i didn't know who those people were they were just writing in a magazine or they were you know in a form of a photograph but it was a message that landed to me and rewarded me Right. So I still feel that books have this ability to kind of communicate a message. And you don't know when it's going to be received, by who, how. And I feel if they are this kind of object that carry these messages, I think that's that's something there. Mm -hmm. If they are just something that is for the sake of it, I just don't care about it. For the kind of immediate satisfaction of holding something. I just don't know if that... And I'm not talking about a higher message. It can be something erotic. You know, it can be also some kind of uh, uh, type of message. Anything that just kind of grabs you or that you resonate with that you can... I don't know, do something that you feel that you can either do something with or that inspires you in a certain way. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, in a book, um, at the end of the day, is just a container of that. Yeah. The books that you do publish have a certain kind of, they do have a certain kind of flavor to them that does that for me anyways in an interesting way. Often we have the expectations, and because the market require that, that the books, for example, immediately sell out. And to me is rewarding the thought that the life of the book isn't the year after is the just the, the moment in which it's been published you know we think the kind of shelf life of a book is less than a month uh, yeah. a year now it's like six months yeah but actually you know there are books the books these books will exist for a very long time and some books i feel like you know they might not be received by the right people yet right so it's almost like the making of it like there's something in the making of it that the kind of genesis of it and then Everything that kind of comes after, not like it's like there's the the before and the after that almost. Yeah, and the after is not in our hands, right? Um, You know, as much as you can, you know, market it, distribute it, and all of that. Um, You know, think about the novels or the books that really have left an impact in people. And sometimes I just feel that we're not prepared for some of this. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me here. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. It's been great. Cheers. Cheers. That was my conversation with Bruno Seychelles that we recorded in London at his studio. 
This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duhaney. Music on this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. If you like the show, take a second give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show and it helps us out a lot. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.